to get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, CBC's Uncover returns with a look at the social scare that bedeviled adults and damned outsider kids. We'll discuss satanic panic. Then he sought justice, first for his son and then for a generation of addicts. We'll dive into Netflix's newest documentary, The Pharmacist. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband, true crime co-author, former TV journalist, and non-burger-getting for his wifer, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. That burger would have been cold by the time <laughs> I brought it home. Excuses. And when have we ever gone someplace and you ordered a hamburger? Well, when have I ever texted you and literally said, bring me home a hamburger and fries? I thought it was a typo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was coming home from my podcast class. Yes. Which I finished up. Is it done? It's done. No more adult ed for you? No more. Aww. And you just didn't, you're just you're just so beat down from working all those long hours for the New Hampshire primary. Yes. That you're like, I don't want to cook. Bring me a hamburger. And fries. Because you know there's a Wendy's there. You know, I, I was, literally said, just go to Wendy's and get me a hamburger and fries. Literally. And so I brought you back a salad that wasn't going to be okay. <laughs> Listen, Wendy's is not a sponsor of this show. There was some sort of so, weird freaking guacamole situation on it, which was disgusting. The dressing was like awful. The lettuce was wilted. The cheese was sour. And it was, ew. and the chicken was like ew. a little bit raw. It was gross. Ew. Excuse ew. me. Ew. Excuse me. Toby, can I get a, a ruling on this? The text says, bring me a burger and fries. Or something. Right. And something would be in a salad. <laughs> yep. Something. I would have gone for like a pizza myself. So, I, I would have thought that maybe no. that was her like, I've been kidnapped. Right. You know, approach with caution. <laughs> True. Are you being held against your will? <laughs> I've been basically walking around for the last, and I got up at 5 a.m. yesterday and worked until 3 in the morning. So that's mm-hmm. like 21 straight hours, 22 straight hours, whatever. And like the diet basically comprised peanut butter M&Ms and whatever it was that my office ordered for us. It was crazy. Anyway, along with the introductions, shall we? And also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady, and celebrity stalker, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello. Yeah, that's me, you guys. I was like 15 feet from Kevin Costner. I was trying to sneak behind the curtain and I totally got busted mm. and it was really sad. Well, we are going to tell that story in the Crime Writers on After Show for our Patreon listeners. Right. So put a pin in it, Lara, because we have a lot of true crime to talk about tonight. And I'm not sure the audience 100% wants to hear your Costner story, although I really do. And I can't wait to hear He's about it in the sexy, After Show. sexy, Rebecca. He's super Ugh, sexy. Yuck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> not a fan. Not a Costner fan. And finally with us, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy and our Patreon book club host, the wonderful and always emotive Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hi, Rebecca. It's finally over. (laughs) It is finally over. New Hampshire primary. I can answer the phone again. Yeah, we can answer the phone. We can go outside. We don't have to pretend not to be home. No one's knocking on your door. (laughs) My texts aren't full of strange (laughs) numbers. Well, America, sorry if you feel let down by the results from our state. And congratulations if you feel good about the results from our state. We did our best, and uh, all four of us voted, right? We did. That's what matters. That's what I don't matters. know. I think you're a lying dog face pony soldier, Rebecca. I don't know. It's <laughs> <laughs> a new one on me. Yep. Yep. I'd never seen that movie. I, is it actually from a John Wayne movie? Allegedly, yeah. It actually I don't allegedly believe. is. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. <sighs> All right. So on our Patreon after show tonight, we will be talking a little bit more about what we've been through in the last few days. And we'll also be talking about Lara Bricker's celebrity stalking 
of the milk toastiest hot guy that boomers love in the entire world, <laughs> Kevin Costner. <laughs> so if you want to get that story, <laughs> go to patreon.com. He's the bodyguard, Rebecca. Oh my God. Slash partners in crime media. He also like, uh, we'll get, we'll take it into the after show. Anyway, yeah. Waterworld freaking dances with wolves. The Whoa, postman. No. Bull Durham. I no. think he showed his hiney in that one. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Okay. Sorry. laughs> All right. Uh, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Get the after show every week. Get married with podcasts. There's a brand new episode there now that Kevin and I recorded where we answered three listener questions in really intelligent ways. Didn't we, Kevin? We did. Also, you'll get Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast. That's right. We make four shows for our Patreon. Other podcasts sometimes make one. We make four. Four. That's what you get. They're not very good. <laughs> but we what well, we lack in quality, we make I up in quality. I actually like our Patreon podcast. I really love Mary with Podcast a lot. I'm a, I'm a sucker for it. All right. Moving on. Shall we start the show this evening? We've got a lot to do. Let's do it. Throughout the 1980s, a strange phenomenon was sweeping North America. Police say those involved in mainstream cults don't break the law, but they say lesser-known cults are formed for just that purpose. Allegations of underground satanic cults torturing and terrorizing children, then deftly covering their tracks. In the new season of CBC's Uncovered podcast, Lisa Rundle brings us to a Saskatchewan town rocked in the 1980s by an alleged pedophile ring. The children told investigators that adults were engaging in terrible acts. There are allegations that as many as 30 children at a daycare center may have been systematically abused. Police concluded that children were abused by a satanic cult in their community. Decades later, people look back at the public hysteria. It's a good thing I didn't know what was coming because I would have run. I would have been gone if I knew what was coming down the pipe. Satanic Panic looks at the troubling chapter when devil worshippers were blamed for rampant murder and mayhem that never actually happened. This podcast tries to tell the story of how things spun out of control in Martinsville and about the people it destroyed. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points through the first three episodes of Uncover, The Satanic Panic. So for our spoiler for review, check out the time code listed in our show notes. Kevin Flynn, mm-hmm. CBC podcasts have a style, lots of narration, lots of place description, descriptions of the way people look, how they talk, where they are. That is the style. And as we've discussed many times in the show, it's a little different than we're used to. What do you think about how it translates in this season of Uncover? Well, we're used to it by now. Um, yeah, it's a slower pace. I think that, you know, if this were done by some other outlets that it would probably move a little faster, but I don't mind that. The storytelling is good, but I'll just say they had to get in that one purple passage, right? Just to be Canadian. For my part, I'm excited to finally be seeing the place. Almost relieved. I mean, you pour over articles, you scour images, you talk to people, but none of that tells you how big the sky is how vast the plains are, and how lightly attached to the earth that can make you feel. Like you could float away at any moment. Or maybe it's all those weather network alerts warning about tornadoes. It was hard not to notice that every single bathroom in the Saskatoon airport appears to be a tornado shelter. I actually like that part, not gonna lie. It, it is very different. I don't know a lot about the, the bu- Canadian prairie, do you? <laughs> Have you ever been to the Canadian no, Prairie? No, just the, I'm here and it's so lovely and that's fine. I'm going to push that aside. Overall, I like the podcast. I don't know. I like the descriptions in this podcast. I like hearing about the town, the people, and of course, uh, the opening also is kind of horrific. Lara Bricker, uh, what do you think about how this show opens? Just sort of setting up this scene for us of, of the whole hysteria and what happened in this place. Well, it was effective um, because it really conveyed that we were going to be listening to some pretty disturbing material. But it almost was so disturbing that I wasn't sure. I was like, ooh, ooh, do you want to go on with this? So the scene that really, you know, kind of set it for me was the woman that was interviewing the children that had allegedly been tortured by the Satanists. Interviewing children is tough. And... uh 
listening to them is hard and watching them cry as they talk and seeing their parents off sitting in the distance crying and of course you have you know I, I, I needed to stay composed I still have scars on the inside of my cheeks I would swallow my own blood in the middle of interviewing children because I did not want to show that this was you know difficult for me to uh, to get through as well and so yeah I have permanent scars from biting down just to to try to get through things I don't know that one scene so I think hearing that somebody went to that length not to react kind of sets you up for this is going to be disturbing right off the bat. So I think it was effective in that regard, but it also might have had the opposite effect. I don't know. I mean, obviously, I had to keep listening. I don't know if other people, when they would start that, would be like, oh, this sounds a little more gritty than I was expect, you know, wanting to get into, if that makes sense. Now, Toby, there is a lot of uh, bad child psychology happening at this point in time when satanic panic was going on. But also, you know, I remember there being lots of stories about kids being interviewed, uh, not necessarily related to satanic cults, about experiences using certain interviewing techniques and kind of coming to the same place where these incredible, unbelievable stories would come out. And then the reflex was to believe the kids. Now, of course, I'm not saying we shouldn't listen to and believe kids when they talk about something bad happening to them. But this is different. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, I think our understanding's changed quite a bit since then, obviously. But particularly with the age that these kids were, you know, they're attuned to wanting to please the person they're talking to. They want to get uh, positive feedback. So it's sort of anticipating what the adult who's talking to them wants to hear. So I think adults, you know, who might have the best intention, but they do have an outcome in mind. It's pretty easy to get kids to say, not that you want to hear it, but what you're expecting to hear, what you're trying to find out from them. So you know, that was a large part of the satanic panic. And we looked at it a little bit before when we looked at um, the thing about what was the McMartin preschool case. Right. But it's a similar thing of having these like very, very young kids describing things that you would you, you just can't imagine that they could possibly like make up. And it's because they're getting this this basically this information fed to them, not necessarily on purpose. But they're picking up on these cues from the adults who are questioning them. Now, Kevin, a lot of the seasons of Uncover that we've listened to and and discussed on this show have been investigations, trying Mm -hmm. to get to the truth of something. This doesn't feel like that. I mean, it feels like that's missing. Um, I just want your reaction to something else, because the thing when I'm listening to this and, you know, I'll just tip my hand, you know, I like this podcast, but I do feel like it is missing a TikTok of what actually happened. Like, you know, there was an accusation and then this happened and then this happened and this happened. Instead, we sort of go from the accusation right into the big story. Lots of people accused, you know, police looking for this building, lots of things going on without really getting an unfolding of how events actually occurred. What do you think of how this story is being fed to us? I mean, it doesn't feel like an investigation to you either, right? Yeah, yeah, not the kind of thing we're going to uncover some wrongdoing or some long lost fact. Maybe that's what we're going to get. But that doesn't—it isn't kind of set up that way. It is more sort of a retrospective, or a, you know, looking back at a, at a historical event. Um, I think that it is though primarily told chronologically, although they do kind of keep some things back and don't put it all in. The thing that I'm wondering that you know that I feel like I'm missing is what went on to really get these. Uh, you know, probably otherwise competent investigators and prosecutors to believe that there was a devil church in town. How did that come about? And I think they kind of tease that in episode four, that they're going to go there. And that, and I think what we all assume is that it was bad police interrogation techniques that became suggestive. And then over time, we, we've come to understand this. But as far as like in a real investigation, what the CBC likes to do is they like to stuff their larger themes inside a chocolatey goodness of true crime. Like The Village was a murder mystery, but it was really about um, a look at 
uh, gay culture in Toronto. We have sort of that same thing from Missing and Murdered. Uh, and so I feel like, you know, whether or not there's a real investigation here, sort of the overall look of looking at the big thing about the satanic panic by focusing on one small community and telling their story seems promising. Toby, I'm curious about your thoughts about um, small communities and how quick people are to believe something that's truly unbelievable in this town and, and the lens, you know, through which they're telling this story. Can you just talk about the fact that, you know, these cops in this little town did think because they got a tip that a small army of Satanists was going to attack them and they were like armed and ready to go? I, that was, I mean, that's a big question for me. I mean, I think there's a there's a couple of things. One is, you know, this wasn't just this town. This was all of North America. You know, it was a satanic panic. I mean, it was it was all over the place. Police in all sorts of communities, large and small, sort of erroneously believe that there might be, you know, satanic cult activity. There were people who were going around pretending to be experts in this when it's just ridiculous because you can't be an expert in something that doesn't exist. And I think it's a big question is how do people get that caught up? in this narrative that, you know, they're willing to turn their back on common sense. And, you know, it, it is reminiscent of like the crucible or, you know, the Salem witch trials where people sort of buy into this narrative and are willing to believe things. And I mean, it's a little bit different because it's not colonial America. But it's still pre-Facebook, right? That's true. So it is the, it is it is ancient times. And they are willing to, you know, put aside common sense because there's this narrative that they believe that can lead you to the scariest night of your life as a cop is like getting prepared for this gang of Satanists to come in and burn churches and steal children and probably kill you. And, you know, you're worried you're never going to see your wife again. So I kind of wonder, like looking back, because it's these satanic sex cults, if it had been labeled a Nazi sex cult cult or uh, alien sex cult, like would people have looked at it as seriously or looked at it differently? Why do they take it seriously? Because it was satanic. Because it's religious. Well, okay, there's some of that. There's definitely some of that, but you know, just the idea that, you know, that they're kidnapping people and plucking their eyes out, but there's no bodies, nobody's missing. This is part it of the friction seems like, in the culture at the time, though. Yeah. I mean, something like this has happened at every moment in time where there has been a cultural friction between sort of progressive thinking and regressive thinking. There's always something like this that happens. What's happening right now that I've experienced firsthand and what this podcast reminds me a lot of, I, I mean, I mentioned Facebook a minute earlier, are the things that happen in small town Facebook group communities. In our small town Facebook group community, a couple months ago, one parent posted something about their kid being threatened at school, and it turned into, excuse my language, a fucking shit show of baseless uh, allegations about a kid and people piling on and sharing unfactual rumors and spreading gossip and talking about a family in town that, like, is lovely. And I saw the whole thing unfold and kept trying to intervene. And when I was listening to this podcast, I'm like, that's what this was. This is like the pre-Facebook that. Like, there's so much anxiety when there's friction in the culture between progressive and regressive thinking or between, you know, um, you know, when there's like economic trouble or something that people just especially I think in small insular communities where you, you need like a villain, people just go bananas with these like witch hunt situations. And to me, like, um, you know, the the myth of the school shooter in this, what it was in this case was like sort of the myth of the school shooter. And I saw, you know, of course, there are real school shooters and, and real stories around them. But there's also this cultural myth that has been built around kids who perpetrate shootings in schools. And I saw that all happening on this Facebook group that this poor kid uh, who had like a tough day or whatever was all of a sudden being cast as like the worst among us. It was insane. And it was all happening in this little place among just a few people in this closed off space, which was our community's Facebook group. Laura, what do you think about this whole witch hunt stuff and how it happens at certain points in time? And it's so easy to propagate, especially in a small town. 
It's so interesting. And as you were talking, it was reminding me of um, my son just did this project at school. And I thought it was kind of brilliant for seventh graders because it got them super interested in things. And it was all about moral panic and mass hysteria. And that's all that they had the kids talk about things like basically what you're just talking about, like school shootings and epidemics and pandemics and, you know, which which trials and all that. And it reminded me of this book that I read um, a few years ago. This lady, I've talked about her before, Catherine Howe, writes these sort of historical fictional mysteries. But this was actually a young adult book she wrote. And it was all about this sort of phenomenon and examining it based on something that actually happened at a school somewhere in New England. And she fictionalized it where one student gets sick and then another student gets sick. And it's like this mystery illness and nobody knows what it is. And it might be related to witchcraft and how it just takes on a life of its own. And it's really like that power of suggestion and how powerful that is. You know, I remember going to trainings when I was a defense investigator where, you know, child suggestibility experts would talk about, you know, how easy it was to create this entirely false narrative, and especially in children, um, just how, you know, you, you wouldn't believe it when you watch this video where it was like the, they, was, they brought the children in and, and they'd say something like, tell us about when you went to the woodshed last week. And they'd be like, well, I didn't go to the woodshed last week. And then the next week they'd bring them in. And I think this was a study they did at like Cornell or something, and it was all videotaped. And it was like, oh, yeah, when I went to the woodshed last week and the rats were there and we killed, you know, and they, then all of a sudden the story kept building because it's like what Toby was talking about, that need to please. But there is that sort of mob mentality that takes over and that sort of mass hysteria that everybody gets sucked up in. And I mean, I've been guilty of it. I get sucked up in all sorts of drama, um, not witch trials or anything, but there is something about that sort of mob thing that happens. And that sort of needing to be able to point fingers. And speaking of that... You know, we have two victims of this that are profiled. By the way, it sounds like we're not there yet. There was a real sexual abuser in this community, the son of the daycare workers who had multiple accusations of sexual abuse. And then it spiraled into this larger thing. Um, but we have a cop who was accused and arrested because he was asking questions about the case. Because, by the way, he's a cop. Because I had showed interest in the case... I became a suspect. Just like that, John goes from enforcing the law to feeling its full weight. And then we also heard about this dad who was arrested and his daughter taken away. And then for the rest of her childhood uh, was afraid to touch her and cuddle with her and mm -hmm. show affection toward her. I, I know our relationship changed. He like I, I remember spooning with him on the couch to watch movies when I was little. And uh, he, that never happened again. Um, there was a lot of that physical just, you know, cuddling and hugging and that kind of thing that he didn't do that. I only really realized years later had changed that I go, there was this distant memory, but dad never touched me in my memory, right? Like he didn't even hug me really. And he did occasionally, but he was not, he was not a touchy dad after that point, but he had been earlier. And that, I, that affected my self-esteem that, that changed a lot of things about, about how I saw myself, um, without even knowing that that was happening. I think it, it has had long-term effects on me, definitely psychologically. Um, just trust and that kind of thing. Um, it affected all of us. I found that just heartbreaking. What about you, Toby? Did, were you, did you find those stories as affecting as I did? Yeah, I mean, particularly the dad. What, what do you do in his situation? Uh, and I think the police officer, too, the story of how he was like kind of like uh, everybody's guilty police officer until somebody assumed he was guilty and now he's changed and he realized it's like, come on, man. Like, you didn't realize that was a possibility before it happened to you. Yeah. So that was a little odd to me. But, you know, there's so many different actions you can take that will make you su look suspicious. So even the most innocuous thing, it only has to strike one person as being suspicious in that atmosphere. And then suddenly, you know, the mob is on you. And and like you were saying, you know, it's, it's not like this is the only time that that's happened. And, you know, I, I think the sort of literature on this stuff, uh, the theory is that it's reacting to, you know, w when more women were getting to the workforce. And so kids are being left at daycare 
And this was sort of the worst possible outcome of that would be to drop your kid off at, get, at daycare and have him be ritually abused by Satanists. Yeah. And so that was sort of, you know, the sort of societal thing that that kind of got this going. But there was so much cultural reinforcement, too. I, I don't know if they've really gotten into that very much or if they will. But, you know, you just flip on the TV and it's like Geraldo's talking about yep. it, and Morton Downey Jr. And, you know, it's on the news and it and it's being put forth as this thing that's going on. And so in some ways, it doesn't even have to be that insular, because when you look in the broader culture, those wrong ideas are just being reinforced because it's getting a lot of eyes on TV um, so that they're, you know, they're really pushing it. Yeah, I kind of remained a little bit troubled by the we believe the children propaganda because you're right. We are supposed to be victim positive. And I think that it was a nice sentiment at the time when you thought these kids were abused. But I like I wonder because we haven't really answered the question. Do people still believe the children today? And it certainly seemed like even after the acquittals, people in the town still looked at these people who were accused as being guilty still. Yeah. I mean, so, I think the problem, Kevin, is that most kids are abused by people they know mm-hmm. in situations that seem safe. And so people don't believe kids or kids don't speak up because they've been right They're, they're afraid to. That or, makes it problematic. Right. But this is for some reason is easier to believe. This crazy thing is easier to believe than my uncle or my cousin or my dad. Yeah. This is easier for people to, to, to grapple with and believe for some reason. That a, a dozen people... Molested dozens of kids. Made them sacrifice animals. Yeah. Yeah. So we believe the kid. But I think sort of as a culture and as a society, we've come to realize that there was nothing to this. And when you kind of, it's kind of like a little Santa Claus thing where when you come to accept that, you're like, oh, yeah. Looking back, it was so obvious. And it just seems like, hasn't everybody picked up on this? I think we'll figure it out later. We hear tape in the podcast of a guy who says he absolutely believed that there were satanic cults there at the time. Remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm wondering today, yeah, how many of those folks are still like, yep, that guy, he did it, he got away with it. I don't know. I don't. I don't wonder how many of the young children, yeah, you know, what their what their perception is. Do they feel like, yeah, I actually was victimized, or I think I remember being victimized mm. because for some reason, or are they like, yeah, that just never happened. I don't know why I ever said that. It's an interesting contrast that um, CBC also made Hunting Warhead, which was about uh, real kids who. Mm-hmm you know, are being victimized and we're being victimized and that they have this. And, you know, the thing about hunting warhead and it reveals which is true. And a lot of the data shows it is that kids don't talk because we don't talk about sexual abuse and we don't talk about kids in their bodies and their agency. You know, it's all about protection and not talking and keeping secrets from kids in the guise of protection, which in turn keeps kids from telling us the truth about what's happening to them and that they also made this where kids were just talking about all this crazy stuff at the spurring of adults and everybody was like, yeah, you were definitely put in a cage with a chicken in a blue building outside of town, 100% with eight cops there. It definitely (laughs) happened. All right, well, let's do what we do. Let's let our audience know, should they check out this new season of Uncover called Satanic Panic? And we should say, by the way, there's also a Gimlet podcast coming out later this month that is also about a satanic panic story so it'll be interesting to contrast the two Laura Bricker what about you thumbs up or thumbs down for this season of Uncover Satanic Panic uh, I'm going to go with thumbs up I mean it's, it's a really interesting story um, you know there's some things like I agree with you Rebecca I wish like you called it a TikTok I wish there was a nut graph which is what I used to think of in news writing where it's like here's the quick overview of the story here's where it's going here's where we've been because this is really more of a reflection than you know kind of going back and it's just kind of retelling the story and putting it into context but I, I would have liked a little bit more of a roadmap. But overall, I mean, it was just really interesting to listen to this small town where this happened and people that were there recounting it and and some really good voices that, that shed light on the whole story. What about you, Toby Ball? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this season of Uncover? Satanic Panic. Yeah, I'm a thumbs up. You know, the story's interesting. I think it's an interesting period and uh, sort of window into people's psychology. You know, people just come to kind of accept things unquestioningly that are just, frankly, completely bizarre. And and how does that happen? And what are the ramifications? And uh, I think that does a good job of that. Kevin Flynn, what about you? Uh, I am also a thumbs up. I 
think I, I I didn't really know what I would get out of this podcast, whether or not it was going to be a broader societal investigation and retrospective. I, I do like that they're focusing on one town, and I found myself really drawn in to uh, the story. Yeah, it's probably something I could Google and find out where it starts and where it ends, but i much rather have these reporters tell me uh, how it went down, because I am still riveted at uh, how this, uh, this small-town story is going to end up. So I am a thumbs up. I'm a thumbs up, too. This season of Uncover, the Canadianness of it is working for me. Uh, my only gripe is that sort of lack of TikTok and sort of what actually happened and some of those broader contexts that Lara was mentioning. And one note, I just want to talk about uh, our protagonist, our woman cop protagonist, just to ground our audience. Mm-hmm. At one point, she mentions that she went back to work. She was an RCMP. She left her job because she had two little kids and moved to this small town because her husband was also a cop she was an asterisk with this police force and it was really hard because she was working full-time and she also had to feed her kids and take care of them and take care of the house and i just wanted to be like dude why isn't your husband pitching in and doing half of that anyway that's not the podcast fault that's her husband's fault i'm sure he's a lovely guy Anyway, thumbs up for me for Satanic Panic. I'm enjoying this season of Uncover, as I've enjoyed many of the previous seasons I've uncovered. I'd recommend that our listeners check it out. Moving on. I'm Dan Schneider, and I'm a pharmacist. I can almost remember every piece of my life. I have hundreds of hours from wiretapping phone conversations about what happened to me. Netflix's The Pharmacist tells the story of a mild-mannered Louisiana druggist whose life is turned upside down by the murder of his son on a New Orleans street. My son was murdered by crack. The police have the attitude that these kids maybe got what they deserved. But I was determined to get the killer off the street. If the police wasn't going to do it, I was going to do it. Pharmacist Dan Schneider copes with his grief by throwing himself into the hunt for his son's killer. But the documentary makes a hard left turn when, while working through his grief, Schneider notices a pattern of healthy-looking people filling OxyContin prescriptions from a particular doctor. At first, my mission was to get justice for my son. But then I started noticing in the drugstore a lot of kids around my son's age coming in with high-powered opiate prescriptions for OxyContin. Word on the street was, it's just heroin and a pill. There was a certain doctor using her license to virtually decimate my community. I couldn't look the other way. The Pharmacist features not one, but two incredible stories of a person who channels his mourning into activism. Dan Schneider is pushy, sympathetic, and effective. The series takes us from one family's kitchen table all the way to the boardrooms of Big Pharma. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for The Pharmacist, so to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review. Laura Bricker. Yes, Rebecca Lavoy. You are a professional investigator. And one of the things that struck me watching The Pharmacist, both the first part of it, which deals with Danny Jr.'s murder, and the second part, which deals with Dan's investigation into what turns out to be the seeds of the nation's opioid crisis, is that this guy is a damn good investigator. You know, take away anything else you might think about his privilege, his tactics, whatever. He's good, right? Yeah. No, I mean, that's the thing. It's like this this conflict as you're watching this, because you're like, this guy is totally overstepping, and you're worried he's getting in the way of the DEA. But my God, he went through the whole phone book, calling everybody in the phone book. His persistence and his determination, it's like, you know, like that shoe leather, gumshoe sort of dedication that actually solves cases. But then you're you're looking at that and the whole time I'm like, wow, he is really good at this and he is really persistent and he figures out how to like pinpoint which doctor is prescribing all these drugs and then find out where her office is and stick at her office and but at the same time you're like, is he crazy? Or is he just obsessive? Is it it's it's this whole the whole time you're watching it, I can't decide where where I land on this guy except that He's really good at pursuing the truth. This whole thing does kind of bring you mixed feelings about Dan Schneider, right, Toby? Uh, Yeah. You know, it's hard to be too hard on him, largely because the grief that he clearly feels, you know, I I think people should get quite a bit of leeway, but he is, he's so overbearing. And I use the word entitled, which has such a connotation now, but like he thinks the fact that like the DEA isn't willing to tell him exactly what they're doing means they're not doing anything and that he's entitled to, to know. 
you know, the way he treats that woman, Shane, the pressure that she's put under uh, that's putting her and her family in danger, even when they sort of go, uh, you know, witness protection so he can get some closure. I didn't know how it was going to happen. I just knew in my heart something was going to happen to me. It's a lot to think about. I don't want to give you danger. You might be the only person who can help solve this case. So I fear for you too. I mean, I fear for you not only personally, I don't want to see you harmed, but I also fear that if something happened to you, there is no case. Like these things, it's a little bit tough. And I just think of him as like one of those pharmacists. Like I, I don't go to the pharmacy. Like I know what he was doing with the with the with the oxycontin, and you know somebody had to say something. But I do just get the feeling he's one of those guys who's got an opinion about what drugs you're getting. Mm. And I wouldn't go to a far like I would just go somewhere else. Like, dude, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't go to Bradley's. <laughs> dude, this is my prescription, man. I've got I've got strep throat. Yeah. just give me my penicillin. Yeah, but you know, but on the other hand, the the scourge of opioids, he he recognized it, you know, and it wasn't like he was pursuing something that wasn't like a real issue. Hmm. Now, Kevin, you also had some conflicting feelings about Dan Schneider, right? Like mm-hmm. the position that he put Shane in. Um, yeah. Ultimately, though, this this he does solve his son's murder, and the whole front part of this documentary it's very interesting to me they tell that that first story about danny jr and his murder and the solving of that murder and they even have the perpetrator in the documentary talking about the fact that he did it and all the things that happened to him that's interesting though right because it does speak to dan's later motivations but part of me also wondered like did he come into this already with some of those motivations when you see the doggedness with which he pursued that truth. Yeah, and before I answer sort of that question, I do want to talk about the balance of telling this story because you have two connected but somewhat very different stories. They're both complete stories. Both could both be stories. like two separate documentaries. And so how do you balance that sort of with the time that you have? You have four episodes. Where do you start one and stop and do, do you tell them both? I think actually, you know, what really complicates that is the fact that he found the killer. Because now you got you really have to tell that whole story, right? And how it went down, and there's a lot to it. If the cops made an arrest, or they never found anybody, it can be the first thirty minutes that explains his character motivation. Ah, uh, he's he's grieving. He he channels it all into this activism, and then you can go on and tell the story about the opioid crisis. But you really have to figure out, okay, well now how do we tell that story, the story of his his son's murder, and balance it with this other story that we have? That's kind of a different flavor from everything else. So I think that makes it hard. And so you go one and a half episodes in, which is why I think sort of there was this prologue uh, at the beginning of episode one, where he said he explains sort of in one minute where the story is going. Mm. His son was killed. Uh, he found the killer. Then like he started noticing opioids and then he went all the way to, you know, the big pharma company. It was the nut graph that Laura likes. Yeah. And I think it was important because I think without that, or if you're not paying attention to that, you get 15 minutes into the second episode and you're like, well, well, what the fuck is happening now? Yeah. This is so different. But they do construct it with a lot of twists and turns, right, Laura? I mean, there are like, oh, yeah. oh shit moments and reveals in mm-hmm. both parts of the story, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, I thought that, you know, again, I was kind of like thinking like, Kevin, like, I mean, if this is two stories, like, why did they tell both together? But I think it, it goes to his character because you're really getting a sense of how he is determined on both cases. But the twist that I really didn't see coming was, you know, we are seeing in the first two episodes, Jeffrey, who mm-hmm. ends up mm-hmm. actually being the killer. And we think Jeffrey is the eyewitness. And then there's a big twist. And and I was like, oh, wow. But I thought it was amazing that he was in this documentary and that he was talking and that the way they set it up. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I was like, um, it was it was impressive, you know, but I, I, I do kind of wonder, though, in hindsight, like looking at I don't know if it should have been two stories or if it's more because it's the story of Dan, even though this is the issue that he's tackling with, you know, Oxycontin and everything. I don't know. I'm a little conflicted on that because I, I do feel like the first story to me was a little bit incomplete because I didn't feel like I got a full sense of where his son you know, like I wanted a little more information, like I, how 
how he spiraled to the point that he did that he ended up on that street where he got shot. And we got some of it, but I felt like I wanted a little bit more, if that makes sense. I'm not sure they know. And if they did know, it would be on tape somewhere. Right, Toby? Because that guy (laughs) recorded everything. The actual fuck with that tape recorder. Oh my God, it's so crazy. I was was like, I I thought I was going to have an aneurysm about the HIPAA violations that have been taking place all the time. His wife is crying on his shoulder about their dead son. And he's he's like, hang on, let me just get that tape recorder, pull it over. Exactly. Like, hold, so, so hold on, I gotta flip it over. It's only, it's only a ninety minute cassette tape. Oh, I gotta flip that. <laughs> I mean, he's he's at his pharmacy flipping on his tape while he's talking to people about their prescriptions. It's fucking nuts. He's an obsessive, right? Like he's he's an obsessive compulsive or something, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, something. look, I, I think like if they didn't have that first part and you just started with this with this, if you didn't have the stuff about his son, and you just started with his opioid investigation stuff. You would think he was a freaking lunatic because mm. yeah. the stuff he does is bizarre. And unless you have that context for his sort of sense of mission and stuff, I, I mean, even with that, he seems kind of nuts. But but without that, you know, I think it'd be really hard to paint quite as sympathetic a picture yeah. of him or make him seem more relatable. Doesn't it help that his daughter's in it talking about him and his family? I mean, he seems less nuts to me because he is surrounded by these like a loving, reasonable people. My family was very, very close growing up. We did all kinds of family vacations together. It was a long travels, like we would go across country. That's the Shenandoah Valley outlook. And then you see him after he, you know, solves his son's murder. You see him going into schools and talking about drugs and like he does seem like like he's on the right side. It's just it's just his activities are bananas. No, he's told. I mean, I don't think anybody would look at him and be and say he's like a bad guy. Again, I, I don't want to speak badly of him, but he's you know he he's a bit of a narcissist and he he feels like he's on a mission, and you know he feels like. God didn't flood his neighborhood even more because he had his stuff up in the attic so mm. that his papers would be saved. And maybe that's the kind of, you know, sort of self-regard you need in order to have the the wherewithal to approach these kind of overwhelming things that that he does with the expectation that he's going to figure it out yeah. and win. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, it's just like when, you know, we would have presidential candidates come to my office to do a forum and somebody would say, oh, well, that guy really seems to like himself. I'm like, don't you kind of have to to be the kind of person that would run for president? Mm-hmm. Don't you have to think of yourself as a person that could be president of the United States? Like, that is a personality type. Kevin, um, how surprised were you that after a full hour of him investigating this doctor, Dr. Cleggett, who was prescribing these thousands of prescriptions at three in the morning and he's doing stakeouts of her pill mill clinic and like this whole story is built around her, 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 her. How surprised were you where on the end of episode three, the cliffhanger is that you see they're going to be interviewing Dr. Cleggett herself. I spent a very, very long time to become a physician. Too many hardships I had to endure to actually get to where I was, to have it snatched away. My desire to become a physician started when I was eight years old. I wanted to help people, simple as that. Well, I have to say, dinner got cold that moment. (laughs) Yeah, that was something, because, you know, they had... Jeffrey and Shane throughout it and you, you didn't know who they were but they had them and they were using them and I thought well if they ever had that doctor they'd be using her by now and all of a sudden boom there she is but god that doctor that bitch I can't she's a tragic character though she, she is because it seems like yeah that she was also using herself and so that led to a whole bunch of other bad decisions but just her inability to really take any responsibility. Well, she still obviously has issues, but I, I found her also to be a very tragic character because here she was, a black woman from a poor community who graduated medical school and was a pediatrician. Obviously, something happened, and here's where she ends up. And this is now years and years and years later, and she's a freaking disaster. I think it was probably that car accident. I know, but 
I just really, you know, I'm not saying that I, it's not wrong that she like got all these people hooked and killed a lot of people with those prescriptions. But she's also struck me as a very tragic turn to sort of watch her talk on screen. But still, the cliffhanger of seeing in her that in that chair, Laura. What did you think when you saw they were actually they actually got Doctor Cleggett in this film? Um, I just kept watching. Yeah, because I was like, whoa. Um, like I said, they had access to a lot of people in this, and I was. I was really surprised that she participated, but I, it was also sort of frustrating for me watching because she was so in denial about having done anything wrong still. And, but it, you know, it was also, I was like, man, she's a mess now. And it was interesting to see her holding on to that really strongly with like, you know, she didn't do anything wrong and, 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 and really holding on to her, her side of things all these years later, even after, you know, all of this has already been dealt with and she's, and then she wasn't able to, was it, she wasn't able to serve her time, correct? Because of her medical issues after the crash. Mm. But I, it just, it was, it was really, it was really awful to j- just watch this, this woman end up in this, this condition at the end after this whole story. I mean, I, it seemed as though she, she might, have like some brain damage or something yeah yeah yeah. i kind of wondered that toby i kept thinking about when i was watching this serial season two and the concept that that season was constructed around zooming out right so you start with this very personal portrait of dan schneider and his son's murder and how it affected their family and his investigation and his shoe leather work and then he's in the pharmacy and he notices this problem and he once again like pulls his family into it and he's making his wife go on stakeouts with him but then the film sort of zooms out and out and out we get the FBI and the DEA and the filmmakers zoom out as well because they also interview you know a pharmaceutical sales rep who worked for Purdue Pharma at the time Mm. and I really feel like they did a lot of due diligence in, you know, we were just talking about the uh, Uncover series that really takes this large story and only looks at it through this one tiny little slice of this town. But this documentary is almost taking the opposite approach. Do you think that that worked, that big zoom out that they do? Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I, in a lot of ways, I think one of the really strong things about this documentary is that I think it's an opportunity for people to learn more about this who aren't in communities that are affected by it. And I say that having, you know, for the last eight, nine months in, in the new job I'm doing, like a large part of what we do is evaluate efforts made to combat the opioid crisis, right? And so what they were talking about when she was talking about their, you know, the drugs have their seasons and there was the season of, uh, you know, Oxycontin and then there was the season of heroin and now there's the season of fentanyl. And that's 100% what, what, what's happening, you know, in the Northeast. It happens very, very fast. But I think there's a lot of people who don't, like, unless you're in a community that's affected by it, and there's certainly a hell of a lot of communities that are, I'm not sure that you necessarily know the extent and the changing face of the crisis. And so I, I was actually, I thought the last 20 minutes, half hour of this did a really, really good job at least from what I've learned over the past six or eight months of giving a pretty good sense of, of what's going on and the scope of it and the, the quickly changing nature of it and that it can seem like it's a really intractable problem and how do you go about is it solvable, basically? Yeah. And it's also contrasted with what they show us at the beginning of the film, which is how the crack epidemic was treated completely differently when it only affected, you know, minority and poor communities, how, you know, rate of incarceration was high, white flight in the neighborhoods, you know, everything was criminalized, and that this has just gotten like a, it's getting a completely different treatment. And I think I think the zoom out also is is just really effective here. I'm wondering about that uh, drug rep, though, whether oh, that was he a is good a one. good yeah. guy or a bad guy. I mean, he certainly he didn't find religion until he went to court. Mm. He's not exactly, you know, St. Paul on the road to Damascus here with his great, <laughs> you know, revelation. Uh, but I think I think he was honest about the fact that, yeah, I, I thought this was strange. But then when I started getting thirty thousand dollar checks, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to go along with it. It's helpful to have somebody explain to you why they did it 
I mean, this is the same thing we get with Jeffrey. I mean, that to me, those were like the the interviews that sort of were the parallel interviews. Like to me, there's a lot of parallels between the first story and the second story. And, you know, Jeffrey talking about why he killed Danny Jr. Mm -hmm. What happened? This was his circumstance, you know, whatever. And this guy doing the same thing. And you see Jeffrey in this room, which is like completely decayed. Yeah. I was wondering about that room. Like, what was that? Yeah. And you see this guy giving an interview in like a clean spacious well-lit space and you sort of just that to me that contrast is very stark and they were sort of filmed similarly i mean i think that that's what the documentarians were trying to do was say Mm -hmm. like this was a soldier on the ground hurting people let's but look at this guy where he is now he's wearing a sport coat and a netflix documentary with his hair gelled and jeffrey went to prison when he was 15 years old you know yeah I thought his shirt was gray with that blazer. I don't know. I guess I wasn't oh. focusing. <laughs> I was. I thought his place was pretty sparse. But I have to say, the thing about Jeffrey, back to Jeffrey, that really I think was the most heartbreaking detail of the whole story to me was when he went to prison and he had never been on the highway before. Yeah. Mm. That just hit me like, oh, it, it, you know, it just was awful. Well, I guess the, the two things, one is that the, you know, the, the pharmaceutical rap like you do get the sense that you know he just wanted to get into sales, get into medical sales, make some money, and I agree with Kevin in that I think you know while the money was coming in, it was easy to kind of ignore probably the little questions in the back of his head about what what exactly is going on here. But now looking back and 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 thinking you know what part did I play in this? You know whether it was witting or unwitting, or you know it, it's somewhere in between the two. It seems. The other thing is I them calling out the Sacklers and showing that guy just like lying yeah. um, in that deposition. Uh, you know, again, the greed of people who have more money than they know what to do with and feel no compunction about, you know, the devastation that they're wreaking on thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Like if they were killing those people with like smallpox or something, they'd be seen as mass murderers. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, like the fact that they're not on trial and that they're just, they pay sort of a token, though large, but token compared to their wealth uh, fine is completely freaking ridiculous. I would recommend that if anyone wants to learn more about the Sacklers and their role in the opioids crisis, look up on your HBO Go account. The uh, Last Week Tonight episode, actually Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, has done several episodes that feature stories about the Sacklers, uh, their latest pain, the Sackler family, is having their name taken off of art galleries and museums, <laughs> so which they donated. They, they find <laughs> that very troubling, that their name has been associated with this crisis, and now their their charitable works have not been recognized. Anyway, fuck those guys. Yeah, fuck those guys. I can get on board with that. All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know. Should they check out The Pharmacist? It is a four-part documentary on Netflix. Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Thumbs up or thumbs down? What do you think of The Pharmacist? Um, I think you should check this out just to see how this guy records every facet of his life. It's the most crazy (laughs) thing I have ever seen. I mean, I secretly record my family but I have nothing on the guy in this documentary. So I think you have a podcast. (laughs) I know I need material. So I'd say for that, it's really interesting. Um, He, this main character is very compelling. He's also very conflicting because you're going to have, I had conflicting feelings about him. Um, But overall it sheds light on, you know, a really big issue that's facing the whole country as well as a really personal story. So I would say unique and give it a try. Uh, My work wife, Maureen and I always say, remember when Omarosa was fired from the white house and she had recorded, that she made on her pen. Yeah. We always joke like, we really need one of those Omarosa pens. We like, <laughs> really need one of those Omarosa pens. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for The Pharmacist on Netflix? I was kind of on the fence until the last half of the last episode uh, where I thought it really gave a larger purpose to the whole thing. Uh, another thing that I think it does very effectively is I think this might be the most effective portrayal of grief on the part of the family that's left behind uh, of anything we've seen. I mean, I might be forgetting something, but I found that pretty powerful. You know, at the beginning, I did find myself at one point being like, oh my God, I'm watching another freaking documentary about a dead kid and stuff that's happening. But it it moved on, you know, that was part of it, but then it became more as well. Uh, So I I give it a thumbs up. It's not like a huge thumbs up, but I, I think in the end, 
it sort of justifies the journey that you take to get there. Kevin Flynn. Well, I think it's an interesting tale, although it has some structural difficulties, trying to tell these two tales in one documentary. Um, Dan is a very compelling character. You probably, If you know him, you probably think he's a real pain in the ass, uh, but he's persistent. He's somebody who won't take no for an answer. I mean, that's why it's called The Pharmacist. It's his story. And it really shows, you know, a way that you, someone can channel their grief into something that's larger than themselves. So for all those reasons, I'm going to give it a thumbs up. I'm giving it a thumbs up, too. I really liked it. It was uh, fun and interesting to watch. I love the look at uh, the different parts of this community. I especially loved all the New Orleans accents that we heard on this show. Seriously. Love you guys who are listeners who live down there, but your accent is super weird. I'm sure you think the same about us, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> it was Cajun meets Brooklyn. Meets, it was something. Yeah, it was something. But, but a really interesting story. I did like the zoom out the documentary took, and I actually really like the structure of it. I think that I, Kevin Flynn and I disagree a little bit there. I thought it was put together really well. I love the completeness of the first act and then entering the second act. It almost felt like a play with the curtain closing, which take a little intermission. And then we start a whole new thing. I really found it refreshing, interesting. And I think Dan is super weird, but, you know, he's doing his best in a world where he's been handed some weird cards. And, uh, you know, if nothing else, he's a damn good investigator. So thumbs up for me for the pharmacist. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the the week. week. Officials in Toronto... Hear how I said that, Kevin? Toronto? Toronto. That's correct. Officials in Toronto and Vancouver are throwing cold water on a popular animal act. Twiggy the water skiing squirrel rides behind a remote-controlled boat wearing a tiny life preserver, teaching kids about water safety. After the show left town, Toronto officials said the act violated ordinances against people taking wild animals. Meantime, authorities at the home of the Vancouver International Boat Show say they prohibit performances by rodents. Mm. Twiggy's Water Skiing Act has been going on for 40 years when the first squirrel was domesticated and trained by a Florida couple in 1979. Oh, it's like Menudo. Okay, got it. Like Lassie. Yeah, right. Okay. Like Morris the Cat. Wow. (laughs) It's quite amazing how easy it is to train these critters to hang on a harness while a tiny boat zooms around on an indoor pool. And we think, well, maybe Kevin thinks, that pulling the plug on this squirrel act is just nuts. Nuts. So, panel, here's my question for you. It looks like Twiggy could be out of a job. If she does, in fact, get laid off, what other line of work might she get into? What do you think, Laura Bricker? Um, snow ski is water skis to snow skis for Twiggy. I would like to invite Twiggy to come up for the annual pond skimming competition at the ski area that will be taking place um, in pretty soon, maybe just another month, where you, you go down the ski hill and they've made a man-made water area. Twiggy would already be very good at this. We like squirrels in New Hampshire, so I think this is something I can get behind. What do you think, Toby Ball? If Twiggy is out of a job, what other line of work could this water skiing squirrel get into? Not smuggling. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think, Kevin? What other line of work could Twiggy get into when she's out of a job? She should become a pharmacist because there's no fucking way that guy's still working at Bradley's. (laughs) That job is open? Is that what you're thinking? (laughs) A squirrel pharmacist. All right, we should probably end on that note, but before we do, Lara Bricker, drumroll please, do we have a cat of the week this week? Uh, Wow, we have some dogs, Rebecca. Nice, my favorite animal. Yeah, so a few weeks ago, we had the asshole cat episode. That's right. Now, Mm -hmm. that has led to the asshole dog episode. Um, Lisa Spaulding is sending in her dog Wrigley, her very own asshole dog, Trash Panda, and all the things she has opened and got into, eaten, destroyed, She's 10 years old. I think she's an asshole for life. And we have pictures of Wrigley just nonchalantly at the water bowl while an entire trash bin is opened with, it looks like a banana peel and some other stuff. (laughs) But that like led to everybody else with their asshole dogs. We have Nicole, fellow garbage digger Miko, named after a Disney cartoon raccoon. Um, He has done some major damage. Cindy, ooh, her dog, ooh, has eaten an entire canned pumpkin. I don't know what that's about. Mm. Kim has a dog named Bailey. 
went to open the apartment door, could already smell the disaster. She had broken out of her crate into a cupboard where she ate a five-pound bag of multicolored cookies. Her entire apartment was covered in vomit. Nice. So there's a lot of asshole pets out there, but we love them anyway. So um, thank you for sending them in. It kind of made my afternoon. Listen, I love dogs so much. And yes, they are assholes. But I do contend, Kevin, that when dogs are assholes, it's because we set them up to fail. Right? Mm, Right. Dog ate your cookies. Is that the dog's fault? That's just a dog being a dog. It's Cookie's fault. <laughs> Blame the victim, Kevin. Blame the victim. All right. Well, Lar Bricker, if folks want to send their asshole or lovely dogs or cats or water skiing squirrels to you to be cat of the week next week, how can they find you on Twitter? At Lara Bricker. And Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you so they can send you an Omarosa pen that then you can give to me. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you and tell you how they'd react if they were expecting a cheeseburger and fries and instead got a salad, how can they find you on Twitter? Uh, they can tweet at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way. By the way, hugs and kisses to our friend Leslie. You know why. Right, girl? And congratulations to our friend Patrick, by the way, who just launched a new podcast that is already in the top 10 on Apple Podcasts. Congratulations, mm-hmm. Patrick Hines. Wow. Yay. That's awesome. Support the show you need on... some relief. <laughs> support the show on patreon.com slash partners in crime media, and you will get the Crime Writers on After Show, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. Our line editor is the very handsome Henry Lavoie. Our social media and newsletter maven is fellow Taco Bell stand Meredith Plunkett. And this show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where we, just like pharmacist Dan, tape all of our damn conversations. That's true. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. Well, you just gave Patrick a hand job like that dad did in that documentary. <laughs> oh, wow. What dad? <clears throat> that's what the podcast is about. Oh, 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 abducted in plain sight. It's a, yeah, it's abducted in plain sight. Yeah. Oh, that's right. It's like four or five special yeah, episodes. he talks to the woman, yeah. yeah. That's what made the comment clever. Yeah, thank <laughs> it you. It is, yes. <laughs> it's it a callback. I do the, I'm out the weeks, whatever that, you're always like trying to like play with me on that. No, it's fine. I'm, I'm actually playing with you with what you're doing. Playing with you? Oh. Come on. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of fine, references yeah. right now. It's fine. It, this is making me super uncomfortable. <laughs> Toby. <laughs>